Hello, this is Mark Lieberman, the host of The World According to Mark, brought to you through WPVM LP 103.7 FM in Asheville, North Carolina, and streaming on WPVMFM.org. My guest today um, is a journalist of great accomplishment. As had a, he's also had a career in other related fields, which we'll talk about, Tom Fiedler. Tom, thank you for being on the show today. Well, thanks for having me, Mark. Appreciate that. Well, Tom, uh, you have a long, I say this to, to other people and doesn't reflect age, you have a long and distinguished career in journalism. And you've had um, uh, other things in the academic world, which I'd like you to talk about. Uh, you are a recent um, transplant, so to speak, I guess to Asheville, North Carolina, and but you've been other places at other times, and uh, you are a reporter, reporter, journalist mm -hmm. for uh, Asheville Watchdog, which is a nonpartisan internet journalist or journalism group, and you probably still write elsewhere, but tell us, uh, what attracted you to Asheville and what attracted you to uh, Asheville Watchdog and, and tell us a little more about your career. Well, well, thank you, Mark. Well, I think my attraction to Asheville uh, parallels that of so many other people. We, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, I spent uh, the, the most of my journalism career with the Miami Herald. And uh, although I'm a native of New England, we lived in Miami for for many years. And my uh, I have two daughters. And uh, about the time my daughters were in that age, uh, middle school, early teens, and decided that they wanted to go away to sleepaway camp, I think, as it was then known. Uh, my older daughter somehow came to know about uh, a camp in Hendersonville called Camp Canuga. And um, so my wife and I decided, well, what we'll do, we'll build a little vacation around driving the daughter up to camp and uh, drop her off and, and uh, just check out the area where we had never been. Um, but uh, we dropped her off came, uh, spent uh, a few days here and, um, and really, really were charmed by it. And uh, every year after that, uh, that daughter and her sister continued to come up here every summer for, for camp. And then my older daughter actually came here for college. She went to Warren Wilson. So our uh, connection to Asheville just uh, deepened. And so uh, when my wife and I were reaching that point where we were talking about where we might ultimately retire, uh, Asheville really popped to the top of the list. Our older daughter, uh, after she finished school at Warren Wilson, she stayed married and, um, and uh, lives very near us here. So this um, ultimately became the place where you, you mentioned that I have moved around a lot, which we did, but this uh, is uh, hopefully the last spot and uh, we have put down the roots and uh, uh, been here full time since a year ago last March, really when the pandemic began to settle in, uh, that's when I uh, I actually retired from my second job, which was at Boston University and came down here and um, 
been here full time and got involved with the uh, people who were at the time getting ready to launch the Asheville Watchdog, which does investigative and um, deep dive journalism. Uh, they asked me if I wanted to be a part of it, and I thought I, I, I would really enjoy doing that for all kinds of reasons. One, as you're probably aware, once a journalist, always a journalist, it's uh, something you never quite get out of your blood. Um, but also, I, I thought this is something that might make a contribution to the community in a way, um, something that, that I might be capable of giving back. So that's really how that came together. And uh, But here I am, I'm an Ashevillian now. Well, I think it's um, uh, really a, a great contribution essentially to the area that um, you and certainly so many of the other folks at Asheville Watchdog and other of the journalistic endeavors um, have been attracted to Asheville. Obviously there's a lot of good in the area and a lot of things that do attract people um, and not just journalists. It attracted a former lawyer. Um, but but that having the collection of talent and the experience that people bring from other areas, I think um, is another thing that makes it uh, a great place to be. So you were at the Herald for 30, for over 30 years. That's correct. Yeah. Right, started there in 1973, and um, uh, I left in 2007 uh, to go up to Boston. I, I spent a year at Harvard. Uh, I was a visiting lecturer at the, uh, Harvard at the Kennedy School, and then uh, became dean of the College of Communication at Boston University, which is right across the river from Harvard. So that uh, spent the last 13 years there. So two quick questions. First. Um, the Miami Herald that you were a full-time uh, journalist for is not the same Miami Herald today as few of the major big city newspapers are. Um, did you see some of what we're experiencing now in terms of uh, the loss of journalists, the reductions in sub subscriptions and advertising contributing to, you know, a sort of a condensation, which is not the right word I was searching for back when you were uh, still working for them full time? Yeah, well, it was certainly uh, that that uh, transition, uh, maybe that's uh, maybe a, too much of a euphemism, uh, that what became ultimately the collapse of the business model that supported newspapers uh, certainly was uh, underway during my time there. I was executive editor of the paper uh, the, my last uh, six years there. And uh, that was a time when, when budgets were being cut. The, certainly the impact on uh, our business side revenues uh, was being felt and the squeeze was beginning. Uh, the biggest collapse, uh, I'm sure you're well aware, when when uh, somebody like uh, Craig Newmark comes in with Craigslist and decides that uh, Everybody can put up a classified ad at zero cost. And, uh, you know, uh, we're trying to sell classified ads at the same time at an extraordinary cost. Zero beats whatever the price you're putting out there is. And that really began. And uh, as the internet became more and more a destination for people and printed media, the newspaper particularly uh, less and less, 
that spiral uh, began and, and uh, was really beginning to take hold during my time there. And the only solution I think that we had, um, we kind of looked at it in two ways. Um, I think there's the journalist's view of that, and then there's the, the uh, people on the business side view. Journalists, uh, uh, for somebody who's, uh, who, I think, who, who's, who feels that uh, her his mission is to tell stories, uh, to be a watchdog for government, uh, accountability, journalism, so forth, then um, the, the more people who would find your stories and read your stories, the greater that impact. Well, that's all well and good. The problem, uh, and so the internet was, uh, in, I think in many ways, was welcomed by people on the journalism side because you no longer have to live within range of a truck that can drop that newspaper off in the morning. You can now live anywhere in the world and you can read the story that I wrote that just happens to be on a website that in that case was called the Miami Herald.com. But if uh, the, the money that would support your efforts in producing that journalism uh, goes away, uh, that of course is the downside. And uh, yes, that's clearly what we've seen, the uh, size of the newsroom uh, and this is true of just about every newsroom except for a small handful, the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal perhaps, um, they're dramatically shorter. I think here locally, the Citizen Times has gone from in the past 10 years, a newsroom of 75 to a newsroom of 12. Um, and then- and, and newsroom is a, a bit of a euphemism for what they have. That's really right. Yeah, I mean, people who are full-time engaged in producing those stories locally with a local focus. So that has been um, certainly the tragedy. But I think uh, I'm trying to be an optimist about this. I think at the same time, uh, there are these um, instances of community-based journalism that are springing up almost holistically. And we're an example of that. The Asheville Watchdog, um, we're somewhat unique in that all of us involved in it are, uh, are you know, longtime journalists. All of us are retired and all of us are volunteers. This is our you know, volunteer work, that's not sustainable over the long term, but it, it, we are able to produce uh, journalism that we can give literally for free to existing organizations, including the Citizen Times. So to the extent that uh, perhaps we can at least help or prolong their ability to uh, stay doing the kind of journalism they do. I, I think that's, uh, that's a positive. And there are uh, it, it, organizations like ours, non, nonprofit, uh, online, almost all of us are online only, uh, all over the country, there are more than 300 now of these uh, nonprofits that are part of what's called um, uh, the Internet News Network, INN. Um, 10 years ago, this uh, organization didn't exist. And uh, so uh, what that tells me, Mark, and again, I'm, I'm perhaps being the uh, Pollyanna here, is that, that smart people are going to look for good information that they can trust. And um, to that extent, uh, I think uh, uh, we're filling a need that people have. And the only issue that we have to now overcome is how do we build a business model that allows that uh, to, to be sustainable? Because uh, things aren't going to turn around for 
for newspapers uh, uh, anymore. It's just uh, they're 60% of the cost of putting out a published newspaper has nothing to do with journalism. So if you can get rid of that and just say, how much do, does it cost to produce journalism that we can distribute on the web? Uh, uh, well, I think we, we can uh, figure out. So I'm somewhat optimistic, although right now we're probably in the, uh, you know, the, the uh, uh, bottom side of that cycle. So well, here's the other um, issue I just wanted to address before we get in specifically to some of the things that you've been working on. Uh, and that is that with the internet, which I agree, it seemed at the time in, the, in terms of internet journalism to be, to be something that could be very positive. I mean, we're doing a virtual uh, uh, telecast here at this point and workers don't need to come in and particularly during COVID and, and journalists don't have to be sitting back to back like Woodward and Bernstein at the Washington Post. But the other issue, which um, I think is problematic is because anybody can, can be on the internet and anybody can quote, publish something or disseminate something that in part looks like a newspaper. It has a byline, it has who the reporter was, it, you know, it might even be spell checked and they, they might even quote some sources, but there are a lot of posers out there who are putting together things which reflect a, in many cases, a very extreme point of view, whether it's the left or the right. And they don't have the quality of journalism that you and your colleagues have had at, at the Herald and, and continue to uh, utilize at the Watchdog. And yet they still have, they can get as many subscribers as they can uh, be, by sensationalism. And, and again, we all heard and you've heard, you know, if it, if it bleeds, it leads indicating that, you know, newspapers and yellow journalism and all that stuff has a long storied and not so glamorous uh, history. But now, because again, any Tom, Dick or Harry can be, can say they've got, they've got something going on. How do people and this is a rhetorical question in part, how do people distinguish between what is good quality, well-researched, documented uh, sources for journalism and all the other stuff out there? Yeah. Yeah, well, you've really touched on, I think, a critical issue here where we are in that era where everybody can be a publisher, so to speak. All you need to do is set yourself up uh, with a YouTube channel or whatever, a website and, and um, a blog and off you go. But um, it's, it's, uh, as I mentioned and touched on before, I, I do think that, uh, uh, I don't mean this in an intellectual sort of way, but, but smart people are going to look for good information. And by good information, I mean information that has integrity, that, that uh, can be trusted. And that gets to, uh, I think, the issue you're touching on, which is how do people know where to find information that uh, is reliable? And uh, two things. In some ways, I think of this as um, there's, there's a marketplace of information that's out there. And as um, uh, any consumer knows going into a marketplace, uh, the more informed you can be as a consumer, then the better the choices you're going to make. And right now, what we don't have, at least not widely, I believe, is um, 
you know, is media literacy, meaning simply that how do people know, how can they become informed consumers of the media? What does it take to be media literate in that way? Um, and uh, uh, I think we, we need, we, those of us in journalism or who, who are concerned about journalism, we've got to figure out how we can make media literacy much more widespread. I mean, it's, it's almost a joke when you ask somebody will make some kind of a statement, it could be outrageous or sensational, sensational, and, um, and you say, well, well, what's your source? Where'd you read that? Oh, I read it on the internet. Well, that's laughable because uh, that's like, you know, I put on my tin hat and, and I heard it through the airwaves. It does, it's just, that's not a source. Uh, that's a platform, it's not a source. So, uh, uh, but I think people uh, who are really concerned about making sure the information they get has integrity, they will start to, um, again, be wise consumers. What is the source of that information? How well documented is it? Is it transparent? Can I see? Where that source came from is, uh, uh, you know, that that the old saying in journalism is "show me, don't tell me," and that I, I think is just maybe step number one for people who need to, uh, you know, find to, who need to have be literate about what they're doing. Is did what I what I was reading or what I was seeing, could I really see and absorb where that information came from? Or was somebody just standing up there and fulminating to me about what I should think about it? And uh, anytime that you see that as a source, then uh, all kinds of uh, you know flashing red lights ought to go off. So I think really that's that's going to be the key, and it, but it'll take some time. I, as I mentioned earlier, I think right now we're at the low point as we make this transition from the pre-internet age to the time when everybody has that platform, and the challenge is how do we sort out the uh, you know the 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 grain from the chaff, so to speak, and. Uh, that's going to take some time for us to get there. It may even be we have to start teaching that to uh, our kids as they go through school that uh, to become literate in numbers and literate in reading, it ought to be important and uh, to become literate in, in uh, the media. And uh, again, I'm being an optimist, but I'm hopeful that this will happen. Well, optimism obviously is uh, good and extraordinarily necessary if you are making the effort to get information out there and to preserve your craft. And I say, and and uh, others have said as well, it's a fundamental part of democracy. I mean, we've got freedom of speech, which is under assault, and freedom of the press is under assault. But the the pillars of our our government are supported by um, good, literate, intellectual, and I don't say that as well as, as an elitist, but intellectual discussion. But again, without getting too political here, but first, let me pause for a second. I've had uh, Tom Fiedler um, talking for a while with my constant interruptions, a uh, journalist of many years, I, I think I can say decades without that sounding like, I mean, eight decades, uh, decades, 
Um, and he is here uh, in the Western North Carolina Asheville area and a volunteer journalist with the Asheville Watchdog. And we're here to talk um, in a few moments about um, a recent uh, piece that he wrote, but we're talking about him, we're talking about journalism, we're talking about what's important. And let me just then add for, for a moment here, besides the fact that there are so many um, things floating around the internet, which uh, have the appearance of being uh, credible news and journalism and aren't, we then have um, uh, the chorus of fake news that seems to come up um, more often than not to describe things that the listener, particularly someone who has been written about, wants to say is false, which is, which to my mind, you know, if you want to say something's not true, you don't have to say it's fake. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, something that's fake is, you know, when people used to think that mink stoles were a good thing to wear, you wear, wear fake fur. It's, it's not mink, it's something else. Mm -hmm. but, if you, but if you say something is fake news, you're not just saying that it was slanted, it's, it's, it doesn't tell the whole story. You're saying, I don't even know what that word means, but it doesn't matter what, what I think. It's the people who hear that, repeat it, and think that it does mean something is a dismissive way of saying that whole category, that journalist, that journalism source um, does fake news. So you should go and look at something <laughs> that's not fake news. And I don't know what to make of that. What's your sense of that? Well, I think uh, right at the very top that I believe that the use of the word fake in there was extremely deliberate and, um, and at the same time, extremely insidious because if, uh, if the, the response had simply been that news isn't true, that begs the follow-up question is, well, where isn't it true? Or what evidence do you have that would um, refute what you've just seen? And so you get into a discussion um, about what is fact, what is not. But when somebody says, oh, it's fake, it's as if there can be no more discussion. Is suddenly we have just smeared it and um, go, it's like, going to um, a baseball game and you don't like the way the umpire called it. So you yell out at there, the umpire's blind and you know, where's your glasses and all of that stuff because it doesn't really mean anything. It's just a very broad kind of and dismissive comment. So I think Trump was extremely deliberate in uh, using that line. And of course that's been picked up <clears throat> by so many others, but there's never, an opportunity in there and um, attempts to come back are, are, are really unavailing, they're useless, for somebody to say, well, wait a minute, where is that fake? Where, former President Trump, is that not fake? Because you know, the, it's fake only in his mind. And, and it may not even be fake in his mind, but he, it's like um, you know, that person who yells at the umpire. You just want to change the subject. Let's move to something on. But it is insidious because in that, it, it pushes uh, um, it. Uh, That's it, off it, conversation, for one thing. You can't right. it just ends it. Right. 
there and that's really what happened and so by putting out that uh, label on virtually everything that um, Trump or the right wing doesn't like that is like you know you have worked the umpire in this game or worked the refs so much so that anytime that ref makes a call the crowd will hate it because we've already chipped away at, uh, we've made the crowd feel like that, uh, that referee or that umpire has no credibility. And that's the entire purpose of when the right wing comes out with that charge. Well, there's a couple of other things I wanted to ask you, but I wanna get into um, uh, sort of been something that's been a, a significant part of your reporting um, since coming to Asheville and the Asheville Watchdog. And that is a name that people uh, resonate with one way or the other, Madison Cawthorn. Um, Madison Cawthorn is currently a member of Congress. Uh, he, has, uh, he was elected from what is referred to as District 11, if I have those numbers right. Um, and uh, you and, and Madison had, a, had, had a sort of an interesting introduction to one another. Um, and I know that you wrote an article um, that was probably, it was an article in which you ma made some st um, statements or had something to report on about him that Madison didn't like, and perhaps that wasn't your intention. Your intention perhaps was more to talk about uh, a person who was running against him in, the, in that election. And M Madison went all out after you in other words he went after you and he went all out in my in my opinion can you talk a little bit about that because i think that's a good introduction into uh, an article that just uh was published if that's still the right word uh by asheville uh, watchdog um yesterday but uh it'll be available obviously for people to read um at any time one of the benefits of yeah. internet journalism so tell us about that instance incident well that uh, you're you're referring to his uh, attack on me um during the his uh, initial campaign that really grew out of some reporting that i was doing uh when he was a, a, a you know he initially was in a runoff uh, for the republican nomination with a woman named linda bennett and uh one of the things that he was relying very heavily on in his campaign was the narrative he had put out there is that he was this uh, obviously young, um, uh, ambitious uh, young man who, who uh, was, as he would put it, on his way toward in his filling out a, a, his vision of becoming a career, he wanted to be a Marine officer. And he was going to do that by going to the Naval Academy yes. at Annapolis. And his, um, his ads uh, and in his uh, speeches, he would talk about how his plans to do that were, and he used the word derailed by this tragic um, auto crash that he was in that, uh, that left him a paraplegic. Um, and uh, 
So he has, uh, you know, has uh, went in a different direction. But that idea that here was this young man who had so much promise and uh, dreamed to do service to the country in the Marine Corps, that only because of this tragedy, he couldn't do it. So he was now in public service. Well, I found it interesting and curious that he um, seemed to me carefully to to describe his uh, his quite uh, plan to go to the Naval Academy as by saying he had been nominated to Annapolis to the Naval Academy and um, that's a critical word. I my undergraduate degree is uh, from the uh, United States Merchant Marine Academy, which uh, one of the five academies, and it operates in the same way. Is that uh, in order to be admitted there, you are initially have to be nominated uh, primarily by members of Congress or senators, and um, then after that nomination you then go through a further screening process um, that's largely done by the admissions committee at the academies. And ultimately out of that comes an appointment. And I thought it's interesting that, uh, that uh, Cawthorn is only using the word nominated and yet he's implying that he was ready to go in. So I dug into it and I found out that uh, in a lawsuit that grew out of his auto accident, um, when he was questioned under oath, uh, the uh, lawyer for the insurance company asked him the question about well, when did he know that he wasn't going to go to the Naval Academy? And um, Cawthorn admitted that he had already been rejected by the Naval Academy before um, his accident. He had been nominated because at that time, uh, Congressman Mark Meadows had nominated him, but he never had the appointment. So his this entire... Uh, narrative that he was using and that he was spending, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to put out on television was a lie. And I wrote that story and um, I pointed out a number of other things that he was doing that uh, raised issues about his credibility. Uh, that's what uh, touched off, uh, I think, his response. What he did is, uh, and his campaign handlers, uh, they went, uh, they looked back and uh, my last semester at Boston University, I was on a sabbatical, which um, academics frequently do when they want to get involved and do research on something. Um, my sabbatical was to, uh, I went and I volunteered to work in a presidential campaign in New Hampshire in the run-up to the New Hampshire presidential primary in 2020. And the candidate that I was volunteering for, I stress volunteer because this was all unpaid, I was still, um, uh, again, on Boston University's payroll, uh, was uh, uh, the, the uh, Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey. Cory Booker is African-American. Um, and uh, I think a f really a first-rate uh, intellect and a first-rate uh, gentleman, human being, and uh, in any event. So uh, Cawthorn somehow came up with the idea that because I had been associated with uh, Cory Booker, that I was anti-white and he put out uh, this press release uh, accusing me of being anti-white because I had worked for Cory Booker, which of course was 
uh, a terrible insult. I, I mean, I, I didn't quite know what to make of that, but I, it was clearly insulting to Cory Booker, the implication being that um, if I was working for Cory Booker, then he was probably anti-white, which I think was terribly insulting. And um, ultimately, uh, I think even Cawthorn realized that that was not a good thing and, and um, made some kind of lame apology, not to me, but to uh, Senator Booker. So that's really where that, uh, I think, came from. But uh, it was, uh, I think, primarily rooted in the fact that uh, he didn't like the reporting that was being done that uh, called out the lies that he was clearly using to help get elected. So, um, yeah, he, when you say Madison Cawthorn realized it was not a good thing, um, I would amplify that to say, it was not a good thing for him, for his political career. And even that was a, uh, even given all the things he said before, since, and after, even that was, quote, potentially a bridge too far. So um, the, the, again, to me, it's extraordinary, um, even given the times that somebody would go after somebody for, I think the word, the phrase he used, at least I, I thought was a non-white person. Um, you know, don't even, don't, don't use any of the, the, the typical names to characterize or categorize, you know, African-Americans, blacks, whatever, people of color, just say a non-white person as if white is the, um, is the standard. Um, and so how dare, you did, and what did that have to do with? Was he suggesting, as you understood it from the release, and I, I, I hadn't listened to it, that somehow you couldn't be trusted to write uh, objectively about something or about something related to him because you had been, you you had been exposed to uh, Cory Booker, a non-white person who was running for president. And is it is it even worth talking about? I was totally baffled by what that meant that uh, somehow I was anti-white and uh, I, I still really I, I don't quite know how he felt that that worked to his advantage to use that as an attack on me other than maybe as a dog whistle more than a dog whistle um, to the uh, uh, white supremacists who were out there to think, oh, well, that's all you need to say is that this reporter is anti-white, so therefore he's your enemy. Um, it, it was absurd. And I, uh, I you know, again, I, I just scratched my head. I, I probably should be proud of it. <laughs> Well, let's, in effect, let it go, because it seems to me that he probably could have made his point, even though it would also have been factually inaccurate to say that you were an ultra left wing socialist extremist progressive, all those right. words strung together, and he still could have appealed <laughs> to the same people, but at least, right. it, but at least it wouldn't have been, again, sort of out of bounds in terms of Cory Booker and, and being, as you say, a dog whistle. Um, let me again introduce, reintroduce Tom Fiedler, a, a distinguished journalist for many decades and Cawthorn guy anyhow. And you touched on the fact that um, he was caught in a lie, not uh, by you and by others, but after he had already publicized it, that 
you know, he's a pitiable, pitiable person, but also one who should be respected because he was on his way to an astonishing career, presumably um, uh, having been, quote, nominated, which isn't really a, a real word um, in, in this case, the, the Academy. But he has been caught in, I believe, a number of lies um, about his background, about the accident, about you know, I think there's some part of that story about his accident, which where he accused the fellow who was his passenger and a longstanding friend of not uh, reaching out to save him and so on and so forth. But that's old news. Now he's now he's he came on the scene. He was I mean, he was he was favorably interviewed by uh, in that uh, program, The View, um, because, wow, he's 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 a handsome guy. He's young, uh, probably either the youngest or close to the youngest person who had been. He's out there. He's he's out there everywhere, and he's he's inflammatory, and um, and so there's a story here. So let me t- let you tell the story that is featured in your article, and and you know other other journal uh, other stories that you covered pertaining to. Um, Mr. Cawthorn, just start. Well, why don't, why don't you start with where you want to go back? Yeah, I, I assume that's what you're referring to is uh, that the uh, Cawthorn on the Cawthorn's uncivil war, I believe. is Yeah, your article. Yeah, it uh, it obviously was quite a quite a, uh, I guess, a thunderclap when Cawthorn let it leak a few weeks ago that uh, rather than as we go through this whole process of redoing the the uh, district maps because of the you know the 2020 census, uh, the legislature had redrawn the congressional districts. North Carolina ended up getting a new congressional district. So instead of the uh, 13 congressional districts, there would be a brand new 14th, which meant that somewhere in, within the state. The legislature could cram uh, a new district into it, redo all the bounds, and the eleventh, uh, the original eleventh congressional district, which Cawthorn represents, basically runs all along the uh, western mountains, goes from Cherokee in the far west on the Georgia border all the way up, almost to Boone, and um, which is Watuga County. And then it stretches a little bit um, to the east. It goes down to Polk and Rutherford uh, County, McDowell County, as you head a little bit east. Um, well, what the legislature did is decided that it was going to extend the uh, district, uh, what had been the 11th, change the name to the 14th, stretch it uh, a little bit to the northeast, end, add uh, Watuga County, Boone, into that, and chop off those Eastern counties and put them into this new, what they call the 13th congressional district, which goes from the Western suburbs of Charlotte, really to the uh, foothills of, uh, of the mountains. So um, Cawthorn announced that rather than run for reelection, uh, staying where he was in what would become the 14th, he was going to go eastward and he was going to uh, set himself up in the 13th congressional district. Uh, And he had a rationale for it that of course was based on a lie, but nonetheless, we're used to that. He, uh, uh, but oddly enough, uh, it is legal you do not have to live in your district to to represent it in Congress as long as you live within the state. 
So he was going to um, and that, excuse me. And Tom, that I think is not unique, but peculiar to um, to North Carolina. Other states presumably have residency requirements that apply to these U.S. congressional districts. Is that a true fact? I, I don't know if there are exceptions to it, but I do know there's nothing in the Constitution that requires right, it. And, mm -hmm. and right, so unless a state added onto it, um, it, it would be legal. It was here. But he decides that he is going to move his base eastward toward Charlotte. And, uh, and the way he portrayed it was that he was doing this because it would be spreading his brand of, of uh, we call constitutional conservatism into an area that if he didn't do that, it would be taken over by these, he used the word, go along to get along establishment Republicans. And the person that he really had in mind is the current speaker of the North Carolina House, a guy named Tim Moore, who had expressed not only interest in running for that congressional seat, but it's where he lives. And um, he's right in the heart of what will be that, that new district. And then Cawthorn continued, he went on to say, but you know, to his constituents now, he said, but don't, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, don't worry about it. I, I will make sure that whoever succeeds me back here in the mountains um, will be you know, essentially uh, under my control. And in fact, he has endorsed one of the uh, candidates, Michelle Woodhouse, uh, uh, to be that person. So in his mind, what um, Cawthorn was thinking is that he would not only easily win this new district that he was moving into, but he would be the puppet master of the person who took his old one. So he would have established a fiefdom that includes two congressional districts. This was the grandiose vision. Well, that um, that uh, grandiose vision, I guess, to put it mildly, is not shared by the uh, existing establishment Republican Party, uh, which is essentially revolves around Raleigh, heavily around state uh, uh, the state capital there, and uh, the person who is probably singly most responsible for building the establishment um, uh, Republican Party. Uh, it, uh, he oversees a foundation. His name is Arthur Pope. Um, he is the CEO and president of a chain of discount stores, including the dollar value stores, roses, uh, that, that kind of thing. And he has put uh, um, million, hundreds of millions of dollars into building the establishment Republican Party here in North Carolina. All of a sudden, it was his establishment that is now being attacked by Madison Cawthorn and Cawthorn's, you know, ally and chief Donald Trump. And so what we've got, and I'm not sure whether this was something that uh, Cawthorn actually appreciated when he made, made the move, that what he was doing was touching off really what I think of as an almost existential war between this insurgent pro-Trump wing of the uh, conservative Republican Party and the uh, establishment Republicans who largely owe who they are uh, to uh, Art Pope and that side of it. So that's what I think we're going to be watching over the next several months as, uh, as Trump, Cawthorn, and his other 
uh, allies that he's endorsed will take on uh, some very well-known North Carolina uh, politicians, uh, probably led by Pat McCrory, who was the former governor, longtime mayor of Charlotte, and uh, is now running for the U.S. Senate. So, uh, so I think that's what we're going to see is a a, a really uh, a, a I refer to it at one point as it's like a cage match where they're going to get in and they'll fight it out, but only one person's going to walk out of that cage. And uh, this isn't, by the way, unique to North Carolina. I think we're seeing that now. Uh, Trump has set up that same kind of a, uh, of, of, of a battle, an intra-party battle in a number of places right next door to us in Georgia. For instance, um, you have the governor's race where you have the pro-Trump candidate now um, Purdue running against the what certainly the establishment conservatives uh, believe um, the current governor camp. Uh, so uh, this kind of thing, I think, is being replicated across the country. The result being that I believe the Republican Party itself is uh, having to deal with the question about whether it becomes the Trump Party or it becomes a Republican Party that has to deal with uh, this this insurgency as it had to deal with others like the, you know, the Tea Party and, and those other groups in the past. Madison Cawthorn, again, is obviously um, listening well to uh, the person he idolizes, which is Donald Trump. I think that's fair to, to make that statement in terms of his grandiosity, his sense of himself in a, an imperialistic way as leading the charge um, west to east across North Carolina, uh, be a kingmaker in uh, the district he's abandoning so that that is protected with another person who shares um, his values and his political By the way, base. that's highly unlikely, but we can get back to that. <laughs> well, let's, yeah, right. That's a, it's, in, it's, it's his thinking, it would appear. But he presumably had something, um, he, he must have had some concerns about his electability in the newly formed. 14th district there's that's still uh, even as recreated and, and let's just mention the fact that the maps the maps that came out after the census that were redrawn are being challenged in court as being still gerrymandering uh packing and cracking and moving things around for the benefit of a particular party and not um for the purposes that one would hope which is to create reasonable geographic guidelines that help to mirror the constituents. But in any event, he must have thought that even though the 14th was still going to be reasonably safe, that there was a there was a potential that he might he, he might not be as successful as he was in in the last election. And that's probably what motivated him to consider moving across the, to the to the 13th. Is that your sense of it as well? Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, the, the uh, new district 14th, assuming that the courts will at least let this particular district stand, uh, took a turn slightly more toward, uh, say, uh, say, slightly less conservative, a um, uh, little more democratic, mostly uh, by shedding, as I mentioned, Rutherford, Polk, McDowell, but picking up... Um, Watuga County, which is Boone, 
and um, you have Appalachia State uh, uh, University up there. So there is a, um, a little bit more of a progressive uh, tilt to what the 14th has. But I think even within the Republican Party in um, this 14th district, he was um, facing, I think, what could have been some very dangerous um, opposition. It wasn't going to be handed to him very easily, even initially, even though the people who uh, had declared to run against him were, were uh, in, in a sense, political newcomers. Uh, uh, they had some uh, a resume that would, I think, be very attractive. Uh, I'll only mention one, not to disparage the others, but uh, uh, one of the candidates that came out early is a retired Army colonel uh, by the name um, of Rod Honeycutt. Rod Honeycutt's family is many generations deep here in uh, the mountains. Um, Woodfin, for instance, pioneers in there. He graduated from high school here, uh, enlisted in the army a few days after he graduated from high school, so as a private, and yet um, uh, very quickly was identified by the army as uh, apparently a, a leader. They put him through college. He ended up getting two master's degrees, and he came out, he retired last summer as a full colonel in the, with an extraordinary uh, army background. Um, and of course, he maintains deep ties uh, in here. He, uh, I think, uh, already has chipped away considerably at the, what had been Cawthorn's base when Cawthorn first ran. Um, so he posed a threat. But more recently, uh, the, uh, I think the already the acknowledged front runner to jump in is, is State Senator uh, Chuck Edwards. Uh, appropriations chair uh, in Raleigh now, but a very successful, I believe a four-term uh, uh, member of the state legislature. Uh, so he has now gotten into this race uh, after Cawthorn abandoned it and Cawthorn put his hand-picked person, Michelle Woodhouse, there. Michelle Woodhouse is basically a party functionary. She was, you know, worked around helping organize things. She, she was kind of his his fixer, Cawthorn's fixer, um, didn't make herself any friends doing that. I think she will um, very quickly get knocked out of this uh, this race. And um, so it, uh, you know, even before Chuck Edwards got in, I think uh, Cawthorn was in a situation where he his reputation was going to get uh, battered, if not beaten. And he also, I think, recognized that as long as he stayed in the mountains, he would be marginalized in terms of becoming a statewide figure. And his dream is to become governor of North Carolina. And I don't think he felt uh, that you could become governor of North Carolina if you just stayed in Asheville. Maybe that's something that even, uh, you know, old Vance um, uh, maybe learned back during the Civil War is you got to go east in order to become governor of uh, this state. Uh, so, so there he is. So he's made his move um, toward Raleigh, but um, he has, uh, you know, baited the bear in doing that and that he has now triggered this pushback from the Republican establishment. And even though uh, the establishment hasn't yet come up with a, I think a big name candidate, to take him on, the House Speaker Tim Moore backed out, which was a surprise to a lot of people. And, and that was that was a, at least a, a short term um, uh, points in favor of Cawthorn yeah. because he succeeded 
in getting more who now says he'd rather stay in state government, which is probably a cover. Um, yeah, I think so. Uh, so, so, so Madison did, did, you know, score a bucket there essentially, but as you say, he's stirred up a hornet's nest mm -hmm. and, and the hornet's nest again, it's, he's not just content in going after Pelosi and Schumer and Democrats and AOC or whatever he has created and not created he has latched onto this um insurgency as you say but he stirred up a hornet's nest nest in north carolina as you're saying in your article again if i can just jump to something it, it, there are a number of well-regarded highly placed highly influential quote establishment republicans who just basically didn't hold back in attacking. The one fellow that stands out to me is John Hood, who I think, I don't think he's the president any longer yeah. of the John Locke Foundation, but okay, so he, so he is. He came out with this statement that's in your article. Madison Cawthorn is a callow and appallingly ignorant young man who regularly embarrasses conservatives and Republicans, whether they admit it or not. Right. As they say in the South, he put down the hay where the goats can get it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so it's a, a possible that uh, Madison with, you know, his great one ex, un, inexperienced staff that are also highly paid that he mishandled th this, that he, that he, he picked a fight with the bear. Or, yeah which is probably another North Carolina expression. And yeah. now he, now he may, now, now he may rue the day. I think that's very possible. I, I again, I, I, uh, I don't know this for a fact, but I strongly suspect that he didn't realize uh, uh, what he was doing. He thought, you know, as I point out in the article, this is a kid who is so used to uh, getting his way and succeeding that um, he just thought everything else comes easily. And when he decides he's going to run east and the House Speaker backs down, I mean, this is he just thinks, you know, the world is uh, my oyster and it opens up. And all of a sudden, though, he has found that, um, oh, no maybe not maybe there's something there and the person you don't mess with um you mentioned john hood but john hood um and uh the john locke foundation that uh the person behind that and behind so much else is uh, as i mentioned is art pope and uh, i don't know that there are many other states if any that has somebody like uh, Art Pope as the single force behind an establishment governing group. Um, it's kind of like he's the Tammany Hall of North Carolina, if you can bring that forward. So uh, I don't think uh, that Cawthorn realized that that's what he was doing. So you've got this uh, Cawthorn as Donald Trump's uh, kind of face and, uh, and, and whoever ends up fighting uh, Cawthorn in 13 as Art Pope's, uh, you know, uh, what is it, the, uh, uh, his figurehead. Uh, it's going to be an astonishing campaign to watch. Well, as you say, um, nobody's, at least of all you, I'm sure, is counting Madison Cawthorn out. I mean, on paper and a little bit of diligent reporting, 
revel revealing you know the, the, the number of lies and misrepresentations but the guy raised a ton of money and um and he raised a ton of money for uh what was 11 and now um is uh 14 14 before he he was in excess of 2.4 million dollars in as of september so and, and again, I don't, nobody has specified exactly where that money's coming from, but uh, there's a indication, a quite good indication that a lot of that money is coming from outside the state. Yes. And, and people don't put money into a campaign when they're outside of the state, unless they believe that they're betting on a winner who will maintain the, you know, or give the opportunity to, re to reacquire the majority in the US Congress. But again, having said all that, and all these folks who have been fairly vociferous about um, Madison Cawthorn not only being an upstart, Madison Cawthorn, uh, you know, saying uh, horrible things or nasty things or accusatory things, whatever about others, uh, there's no anointed person yet for um, challenging uh, Cawthorn in um, the 13th. I'm looking at my gerrymandered map here the 13th and um you know it looks like the um primaries uh might be put off uh until this map thing gets straightened out but but it's it's starting to get a little bit late in the evening to not have somebody and to not do an extensive fundraising effort in order to have a shot at putting up a credible candidate who could beat a cawthorn in the primary and again, I'm, get, I'm assuming that the new district that Cawthorn is running from, although it has some Democratic or uh, independent, possibly Democrat-leaning uh, electorate, is still something that, all things considered, he, he ought to be able to retain as just being, if he comes out of a primary, a, the Republican yeah. primary. Well, it's certainly uh, the district itself uh, clearly was uh, was drawn with uh, maintaining the Republican domination at large, ir irrespective of who the Republican nominee would be. So that that's there. Um, still, I think one of the things uh, to keep in mind about the money that Cawthorn has, he's uh, at the end of his last report, which was September 30th, he uh, had shown he had raised about two point three million dollars, but he had spent more than 2.1 million of that, which left him with about $200,000 basically in cash to spend. So, um, uh, you know, he, he doesn't have, uh, he's, he's not as deep pocketed as it may seem, but also the primary reason why people raise money is um, to be able to, number one, get name recognition in the district you're running in, and then number two, to be able to put together, um, you know, some ground troops and uh, TV and that sort of thing. Cawthorn doesn't need name recognition. He has got that in spades. The problem he has is that it's um, a lot of that is, is negative. That, um, so the more people, the more he spends to put his name out there, the more angry he's apt to make people who want to see him beaten. So uh, I think that uh, 
the money uh, is not so difficult as long as whoever emerges either as the Democrat or as a, a, uh, his, his primary uh, party opponent has enough money to at least uh, get somewhat known, which is going to be a fraction of uh, the amount of money that uh, Yes, because the big motivator that people will have anytime Cawthorn's name is on the ballot is to go out and try to defeat him. So if, you know, you, you had Bugs Bunny running against Madison Cawthorn, Bugs Bunny would probably get a lot of votes without spending any money. No offense to Bugs Bunny. So, uh, you know, we'll see how that goes. I do think the uh, establishment wing of the party is still very much engaged since uh, the Supreme Court has given uh, essentially uh, some uh, grace period for new potential candidates to emerge on the Republican side. So I think the uh, establishment party's uh, recruitment efforts are uh, are going to get stepped up in the next uh, several who knows, weeks, I guess. And we'll see where that goes. If a big name steps in, and I don't have any suggestions, uh, this could be an even tougher fight uh, for Cawthorn than he has in mind. But almost certainly, I think what Cawthorn is going to find out is that his ability to then uh, handpick his successor back in uh, what will be 14, back in the mountains, that's gone, that uh, he's not going to be able to do that. So his movement of his uh, vision of overseeing a two congressional district domain, that's, uh, I think, out the window now. Um, I want to thank you for being on the show. Hi, it's been my pleasure, Mark. Thanks very much. I look forward to talking more about this as the months go by. We'll have you back. Thanks again. Thank you.